All right. While those are going out, I want to say a few things. Um, and the first is to any visitors at Grace Community Church. If you if this is your first time here or your first few times here, I just want to let you know kind of what we're about to do and what you will see uh, the majority of Sunday mornings as we gather together as a local church. We are committed to a style of preaching God's word on Sunday mornings. We're committed to a style of preaching that's called expository preaching. Okay, And what that means for you is that 90 to 95 percent of Sunday mornings are going to look just like this. Walking through a passage of scripture together. And when I say that, I mean walking through books of the Bible. Okay, verse by verse, passage by passage, um, starting this week where we left off the week before. And that's going to be our meat and potatoes, so to speak, as a local church and the way that we gather together on Sunday morning. So I want to tell you really quickly why we do that. Is that we are convinced that this most closely resembles how God gave us the Bible. Okay? So think about that. God did not write a devotional book for us. Uh, read a few verses on Monday, a few verses on Tuesday. He actually gave us the scriptures one book at a time. Which means that each book has a context. It has a flow of thought. And there's a message that God reveals to His people in books of the Bible. It's an eternal message okay, that never changes throughout generations. And so what we do is we study the Bible in context. We study it like that. We give attention to those books from the very beginning to the very end. And the reason we do that is that we are convinced that the Bible's meaning, it never changes. Okay? So one way just for you to remember that is the Bible means today what it's always meant. Bible doesn't change its meaning. Its modern meaning is the same as its historical meaning. Now the application could be different in different cultures, different times, time frames, but the meaning of God's word never changes. And so we lean in like this week in and week out because we want to hear from God. We want to know what God said. We don't want it to be distorted. We want to understand the Word of God. And not just for intellectual purposes. We want to know what God has said. We want to understand God's Word so that we can turn and apply it to our life. And respond to the revelation of God in Scripture. And so this is why we do what we do week in and week out. Okay? And that brings us to our passage today. Okay? And this is going to be a little bit different of a passage than you are used to hearing. Um, and that, that might seem uh, more uh, less normal to you. And the reason why this is going to be a little different is we're going to give attention today to what is perceived to be a very obscure passage in Scripture. And what I mean by that. Is that this is not typically what we think of when we think of high octane verses of scripture. Okay. When we think about the power punches, we don't usually go to, you know, Ephesians 1 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That's not what we typically think of when we think of passages like this in scripture. In fact, we have a temptation to think about them differently. We have a temptation to think about. You know, the introductions to New Testament letters 
and the, and the conclusions to New Testament letters, we tend to think about them in some ways as unimportant or as tertiary. And so our reminder, my reminder to you is the same as last week to us as a local church that we believe 2 Timothy 3.16, which says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And so that's what we believe. That's what we believe on paper. And we have a chance to believe it in practice this morning as we gather around this more obscure text of Scripture. Grace Community Church, we don't believe that there's anything unimportant in the Bible. Not a word. In fact, Jesus said not an iota, not a dot, not a, not a, not a tittle, not an iota can pass away from the Word of God. And so... This is, this is our opportunity that we get to gather around this text of Scripture and we get to gather around it with hearts that say, Lord, speak to me from your word. Speak to me from your word. And so with that said, let's pray together. Let's ask God to speak to us from this text of Scripture this morning. Lord, we bow the knee to you today. We are your people, Lord. And that fills us with tremendous confidence, God, that you have already begun a glorious work in the life of every believer in this room. You did that, Lord. It is your sovereign work that we live in Christ Jesus. You did it, Lord. And we are filled with confidence that because you have begun this good work in our life, Lord, you will bring it to completion. God, thank you that we can trust you for encouragement week in and week out. God, that you you can encourage us and you will through your word. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and a heart to remember your faithfulness to this local church. God, that you are a faithful father to us and that you feed us with bread for our souls week in and week out as we gather around your word. And we pray, our prayer is that you would do that again, Lord. That you would encourage us in Jesus Christ today. That you would feed our hungry souls with your word. And so, Lord, let your word do its work in this room this morning. God, I ask for your help as I teach your word this morning. And I ask for help in all the hearers, Lord, that you would stand by them, Lord. And that you would whisper to them in their ear. The things that you would have them to hear from this text of Scripture. In Jesus' name, we ask you to come meet with us today. Amen. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 4. And we're going to read our text together. We're going to start in verse 10. And we're going to read to the end of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. This is the word of God to this local church this morning. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. 
always struggling on your behalf in His prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear Him witness that He has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So I hope you understand what I mean when I say we have a text of scripture that's perceived to be more obscure this morning. Brothers and sisters, we are staring at basically a list of names in the word of God. And in a lot of ways, you know, what's happening in this text is so and so says what's up. So-and-so greets you. So-and-so says hello. And so we have an opportunity to dive into this passage and to hear and to see what God the Holy Spirit would have us to hear and to see. And the way that we're going to do that is really similar to what we did last week. There's going to be a heavy emphasis this morning on biographical information because we're going to zone in on a few of these names And we're going to draw some principles out from their life in order to apply them to our walk with Christ. But before we do that, I want you to think big picture. Okay, big picture. What is happening in this passage of scripture? And the big picture is this, that the big thing that we see here is we get a picture of the Apostle Paul in close relationship with other co-laborers. In this mission uh, to the Gentiles and this mission to the nations. And so this list of names that we just read off is a list of men who have signed up, who have joined him in this mission to the nations. And so that's really the big picture. These men are on mission together for Christ. So I want us to take that big picture And I want us to turn that this morning. And what can we learn just from that? Just from this picture of these brothers that are locked side by side, arm in arm, and they're striving together in the mission of Jesus Christ. And right off the bat, I think the the, the main thing um, that's hanging over this text is that we get a glimpse in Paul's life and we get reminded from the word of God that we have a great need. For others to help us walk with Christ. Okay. We have a great need to be surrounded by other believers in our life. So I want you to scratch on that. You know, just let that uh, simmer for just a moment in your mind. And you think about this. If there was ever a long ranger Christian. If there was ever anyone. Okay. Who could have been a lone wolf Christian. There's ever anyone who is sufficient enough in himself to follow Jesus Christ. And I don't need anybody else. 
Surely that was this man, the Apostle Paul, and his gifting and his zeal for Christ and his zeal to fight sin. And so if anybody was capable in and of themselves of walking with Jesus by themselves, surely it would have been this man. Okay, but instead we see the exact opposite happening in his life that over and over and over again. We see him gathering others around him to help him walk with Jesus and to help him pursue the mission that the Lord Jesus has given him. And so we need the principle for us bending that towards Grace Community Church is you need to be reminded of this. You need to be able to look around you at any moment, at any circumstance in your life. And you need to be able to identify other faithful brothers and sisters that you have gathered around you to help you walk with Jesus. Okay, And there are many, many reasons for that. But I'm going to give you one from this passage. Okay, There are many, many reasons why you need other people and Christian fellowship, mature believers to help you walk with Christ. But I'm just going to mention one. Look at the last phrase in Colossians. Okay, Three words. Paul says, remember my chains. Remember my chains. So I want you to think about that. That was a commandment for this local church to remember Paul's chains. To remember that Paul's in prison in Rome for the gospel. So it's basically a way to say, pray for me. I'm in jail for the gospel. Pray for me. Pray for my heart. Pray for my ministry as I'm in this place. But for us, what does that phrase mean for us? Okay. And one of the things that that phrase should do in the modern world, in our cultural context, is that phrase should literally obliterate the prosperity gospel. So hear me out. Remember my chains in three words should obliterate and blast the prosperity gospel into smithereens. Prosperity gospel teaches this, that you serve Jesus, that you love Jesus, that you have faith in Jesus and what? And everything will go well for you. Okay. And what's the problem with that? Okay. And I don't mean to oversimplify this, but the problem with that is the Bible. Okay. Look at that phrase. You have arguably the holiest man on planet Earth. Okay. And where is he at? Is he riding a jet? No. Is he sitting in a mansion? No. Where's he at? The holiest man on the planet, arguably, is sitting in jail for the gospel. And so that little phrase reminds us that actually the exact opposite of that is true. Those who follow Jesus Christ in this world, you're going to have trouble. You're going to be persecuted. Actually, Jesus promised us this. That in this world, you will have trouble. Trouble, And that's really the thing that I want to put the finger on of, of just one of many reasons of why you need other brothers and sisters around you in every season of your life. It's because you are going to have very, very difficult seasons as a follower of Christ. You're going to have difficulties. You're going to suffer 
And you're going to even be persecuted at times for your walk with Christ. And in those moments, you're going to battle discouragement. You're going to battle discouragement. So I want you to look at verse 11. 11. And this is exactly what is happening to Paul. And as he's imprisoned for the gospel, as he looks around and he's naming these men and he's saying, they say, what's up? They say, greet you. Greetings to you. And then he says this. These men have been a great comfort to me. That's what he says in verse 11. You think about that. So he's in jail for the gospel. And he and it doesn't make any sense. Okay. If someone brings you comfort and encouragement unless you needed it. So just that phrase in and of itself tells us that Paul in this season of his life, he needed some comfort from the Holy Spirit. He needed some encouragement from the God who saved him. And how did God give him that? He gave him some faithful brothers in his life that were a comfort to him. That's one of many reasons of why this has to be a reality in your life. Because you're going to enter into very difficult seasons and you are going to need the body of Christ. You're going to need brothers and sisters around you to help you in those seasons. So I want to ask you this this morning. Do you see this playing out in Paul's life in this text? And I want to ask you, do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this gaze around in your life and you're surrounding yourself with mature brothers and sisters that are a real help to you? Faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. And I don't want any of us to see this morning. Okay, Who you surround yourself with, it really matters. The Word of God teaches us that. And so it really has an effect on your soul and on your walk with Christ. Either to the negative or to the positive. And to the negative, I'll give you an example out of 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33, we have this phrase. Bad company ruins good morals. Now think about that. Okay. Do you actually believe that in your life? That there would be a way for that to actually play out in your life? Do you really believe that? That you can be affected to the negative by who you are surrounding yourself with in your life? And then let me give you an example to the other side of that. To the positive. That you can surround yourself with people that help you. In your walk with Christ. Listen to Proverbs 27, 17. It says this. Iron sharpens iron. And one man sharpens another. So you see that? It is, it's a benefit. It can be a detriment or a benefit. But what the Bible teaches you is that it really matters who you're surrounding yourself with. And if you were to get really personal this morning. I want you to ask yourself just a few questions. Okay, Are you like Paul? Do you surround yourself with mature brothers and sisters that can encourage you on in your walk with Jesus Christ? Ask yourself these questions. Who do you gravitate towards? Who do you find yourself most comfortable with if you were to be really honest? Who, who is your preference to be around? Which category? Those who are soldiers for Christ, who are filled with boldness and zeal for Jesus Christ, who burn for the glory of Christ. Do you feel comfortable around people like that? 
Or do you find yourself gravitating away from people like that? Really mature believers, do you find yourself uncomfortable around them? Do you find yourself more comfortable around nominal, civilian-minded, lukewarm Christians? If you were to be really honest with yourself, who do you gravitate towards? Do you find it easier to chop up shop and talk about golf with a group of men at you know a church event before or after even this meeting? Or, it, or do you gravitate towards discussing and talking about the things of Christ? Those relationships that spur you on to love Jesus more. If you to be really honest, really honest, what is more natural to you? What is your preference? What do you gravitate towards? And I think one encouragement for us this morning is that we need to go after this. To intentionally leaning in to other brothers and sisters that challenge us. Okay? So that even that phrase, iron sharpens iron. Guess what doesn't want to be sharpened? Your sinful nature. Okay? There's a part of you that doesn't want Christian fellowship because Christian fellowship actually helps you to put to death sin and to walk with Christ. So I want to encourage us okay, that one of the things that this picture does is that I would encourage us to move after this with everything that we have. Surrounding ourselves with brothers and sisters in Christ. That help us walk with Jesus. Okay. Now, I just want to say a few more things. I have walked with Christ. For 10 plus years. And there have been a few times. Where I have seen people that I know. And even people that I love very much. Drift from Christ. And I know that many of you have seen that too. That you have seen someone at this stage in life. And they're walking with Jesus. Fast forward to this stage in life and they're not walking with Jesus. I've seen that happen a handful of times, maybe more than that. And you know, almost every single time that something like that happens, guess what's at play? At some level, guess what's either preceding that drift or goes along right with that drift is they pull away from the body of Christ. They pull away from brothers and sisters that are a challenge to them. That are, that are spurring them on to walk with Jesus. It almost always is true. That's why it, it's so um, encouraging uh, for us to stay on top of this, this idea of spurring one another on to be around the body of Christ. It really does matter. It really does matter. But you know, sometimes it's not as simple as that person is just immersed in relationships And slips off into oblivion. And they have all these relationships around them. And then all of a sudden they're just doing their own thing and they're by themselves. Sometimes they take these really mature relationships that they have. And they trade them in and they find themselves hanging out with Christians that really don't care about Christ. That really do not care about Jesus. And so sometimes that drift is they're just by themselves and nobody around them. And other times they just gravitate towards these nominal Christians that don't challenge them at all. And we need to be warned by that. Drifting from Jesus Christ is closely connected to not having fellowship with brothers and sisters. Okay, So I want you to, to see that. This band of brothers, so to speak, that we see in Colossians chapter 4. They're not playing games. Okay. 
they're, they're not playing games at this. These are men that are eat, eating and sleeping and breathing for the glory of Christ. They're, these are men that they're on the planet and everything in their life is being laid down for the mission of Jesus. And that's the type of men and brothers that the Apostle Paul gathers around him. Extremely diligent. Extremely zealous for the glory of Jesus Christ. So I want you to think about that. I heard a story yesterday. I want to share this with you really quick. Okay. And the story, the story goes like this. There's a brother in this church that came here from another state. And he left a really good church where he came from. Okay. Really good church. And he had really godly friendships in that church. I mean, brothers that his soul was knit together with that helped him walk with Christ. So I want you to picture this. Leaving a really good church, really godly friendship. And then he moves to Mississippi. Okay. And that move was relationally painful for him. In fact, it's still relationally painful for him. He misses the other men in his life that helped him love Jesus. He doesn't know how long he's going to be living here. And he misses his friends that helped him love Jesus. Jesus Christ. So I want you to listen to this because just prior to that transition to Mississippi, there was an elder at his previous church that gave him some really godly counsel, really godly counsel. And I want you to hear this. Okay, that man looked at him and he understood the the relational pain that was involved with every person that I think about. Um, that I love in Jesus Christ is here and I'm about to transition to a place where I don't know anybody. Okay? And I don't know how long I'm going to be there and I'm not really excited about that. And this elder, this wise man of God, he looked at him and he said, I want to encourage you that the Lord is moving you to this place and when the Lord brings you to to the local church that y'all are going to be a part of, he said this, He said, I want you to go after relationships in this new church that the Lord is placing you in. And I want you to do it with such zeal that if in two years you move away from that place, that move would be just as painful as this one. You catch that? He's telling him to dig in. Okay, go at it with everything that you have. That the brothers that you have right now, that you would have brothers just like that in this new season of your life. That it would be just as relationally painful. Just as relationally painful. So I want to encourage you, Grace Community Church, I want to encourage you with that. Okay? If you are a part of this church and you were to move to another place. If there would be no relational pain involved in that move, you are not doing church membership right. Okay? You're not doing it right. The picture that we have of the Christian life is your life is so intertwined with the people of God that your joys become their joys, your sorrows. 
become their sorrows. Your tears become their tears. And so I really want you to see that. If you do not have that, you are not doing church membership right. And I want to encourage you to go after it with everything that you have. Dig in and get after this with some zeal of surrounding yourself with brothers and sisters that help you walk with Jesus. And if you do have that, as a member of Grace Community Church, if you have brothers and sisters that your soul loves, that if you are relocated to another place, that it would be exceedingly painful for you. I want you to consider the kindness of God in your life. That is the grace of God in your life. That all you deserve, brothers and sisters, is the wages of your sin is death. And the Lord Jesus Christ, He put away your sin, covers you with righteousness. But not only that, look around. He's given you brothers and sisters in Christ. Seated us together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to give you any of these rich friendships that you enjoy to the right hand or to the left. And so this is a mercy from God in your life. And I want to encourage you to praise God for it. To go after it. And when the Lord gives you these relationships that you praise God for it as a gift of grace. Gift of grace. Alright, we see that we need people like this around us. And that's one of the things that this text shows us. This passage of scripture that we need to be walking with mature brothers and sisters. I want to transition a little bit and I want to dive into a few names. And as we do that, I want us just to pull out a few things to apply to our life from these stories. Just a few of these characters. Okay, these are I want to call them some marks of a Christian labor. They're not exhaustive, but they're in the passage. So I'll pull them out. And I want us to talk about them together. And so the first person I want to introduce us to this morning is Aristarchus. All right. Say that in your head. Aristarchus. Okay. Aristarchus. You see that name in verse 10? Let's talk about this man for just a few minutes. In Acts chapter 19, this brother is involved with a powerful uh, move of the gospel in Acts 19. And so in Acts 19, this is the gospel goes to Ephesus. Okay. And he's part of a little band of brothers and they they've locked arms together and they say, let's take the gospel to Ephesus. And they looked at others and say, yeah, let's do it. Let's take the gospel to Ephesus. So they go in this city and they begin to preach the gospel. And that chapter tells us that the ministry of the gospel exploded with such power and with such authority in the city of Ephesus, that the gospel ministry literally caused a pagan riot in the public square of this ancient Roman megacity. Okay? So I want you to try to get that in your mind. Okay? Extraordinary power is what this man saw as he walked into Ephesus and began to announce the gospel. They're riding in the public square and they start screaming the name of their false god of, goddess. They say, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they scream it at the top of their lungs for hours. Great is Artemis of 
the Ephesians. And there's a man standing in the middle of that riot. And he's a servant of Christ. And his name is Aristarchus. Aristarchus. So I want us just to get a glimpse of this man. I want you to try to picture yourself seeing what he saw in Ephesus. Experiencing what he experienced in Ephesus. This would be like a group of three or four brothers in this church. Banding together and saying, I want to go preach the gospel to Mecca, Saudi Arabia. And they go and they begin to announce the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel moves with such power and authority in Mecca, Saudi Arabia. That the false gods feel threatened of their grip on this place. And they're standing in the middle of Mecca, Saudi Arabia. And Mecca begins to riot saying... Great is Allah and Muhammad is his prophet for three hours. So I want you to imagine if you're one of those brothers and sisters and you're looking around and you're saying the gospel just did that. The gospel just threatened the false gods in this city and they're crying out trying to to maintain every bit of control that they can maintain because they're being dethroned in Ephesus. This man saw that he experienced that standing in the middle of a riot. So I want you to see this man. This is an awesome movement of God. He's he's entrenched in the ministry of the gospel. And when we come around to his name in Colossians. So fast forward in his story. Colossians verse 10. We find out that this man is called a fellow prisoner. Okay. Look at that in verse 10. He's a fellow prisoner. Which means that that same brother that walked into Ephesus that saw these false gods dethroned. He's now sitting in prison right beside Paul. He's a fellow prisoner for the gospel. And so just that sketch of his life. Just those quick touches of Aristarchus' life. And what can we see as a takeaway for us? Okay, As a takeaway for us. And one of the things... That I want us to zone in on and just consider this morning is that a mark of someone who lays down their life for Jesus Christ, a labor for Christ. One of those marks is a willingness to suffer for Jesus. And you see that in this man. Okay, pagans begin to riot and he doesn't run out of town. He's standing in the middle of the riot looking at the powerful work of the gospel in this city. Fast forward decades later and the man's not running away from the mission. He's actually being persecuted because of his zeal to pursue the mission of Jesus. And so as we come to this principle to consider a laborer of Jesus Christ is willing to suffer. They serve the Lord Jesus at great cost to themselves and they are willing to suffer for The gospel. And I want to use that as an encouragement to us to remind us, okay, of what we signed up for. I want to just tell you what I mean when I say that. We signed up to follow the one who said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, okay? Not the one who said, bow your head, pray this prayer, and I'll see you at the resurrection, right? He said, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's what we signed up for. 
the Christ that is revealed to us on the pages of Scripture. And that's a reminder for all of us that our goal in this world okay, is not to slide through life and to evade any and all difficulty and any and all danger. That is not our life goal. Okay, That's not our life goal. Our life goal is to faithfully pursue Jesus Christ until the very end, no matter the cost. That's what we signed up for. That's what we're in this thing to do. To magnify the glory of Jesus Christ no matter the cost. Another way to say that, Grace Community Church, we're not fair weather Christians. Okay, We're not fair weather Christians. We don't serve Jesus when things are easy. We don't follow Christ when things are going our way. We follow Jesus when things are difficult and we follow Him to the very end. Even if it's to cost us our life. Even if it's extremely difficult. The reality of what I'm talking about. Of following Jesus in the midst of difficulty. That reality in someone's life or the lack thereof. Is actually evidence if they are a true or a false convert to Jesus Christ. And the reason I say that is what we're talking about here is not varsity spot in heaven and JV spot in heaven. We're talking about you are born again or you are not born again. And this is one of the marks. Okay. And Jesus taught us this. And his parable of the sower and the seed, Jesus warned us about fair weather Christians. Listen to this in Mark chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. He says this. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when persecution or tribulation arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So Jesus warns us about this fair weather faith. And he warns us in this initial response to the gospel that walks away from Jesus Christ in moments of difficulty. I think Aristarchus is a good example of what it means to follow Jesus Christ at great cost to himself. And we can say this. He found himself in difficult situations as he followed Christ. And so will you. Okay, And so will you. You will have trouble. Through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. And the encouragement to us from this man's life is that we follow the Lord Jesus until the very end. That we're willing to suffer for Christ. There's another man in our passage. I'm going to zone in on his life. And if the first man teaches us that gospel laborers must be willing to suffer... This man teaches us that gospel laborers must be willing to pray, to pray. And his name is Epaphras. Look at verse 12. We see his name there in verse 12. If you've been with us for several months at Grace Community Church as we've, as we've come through Colossians, his name has come up over and over again. Okay, uh, Not prominent, you know, but it's, it's come up several times. And the reason why is because this is the man that planted this church. Back in chapter 1, he's the man that took the gospel to this city, preached the gospel, and the Lord moved on this man's preaching, and there was a local church that was built and established. And so this is him, okay? 
And Paul is basically saying Epaphras is, is greeting you. Okay? But there's, but there's something happening. So Epaphras is no longer in this city of this local church. He's now a long way away from this local church. But there, that, so note the distance there. Ephesus and Rome. Or Ephesus and Rome. Okay? A thousand plus miles of difference. And there's something really, really interesting happening in spite of that distance. Okay? This man is having a great effect on local churches that are a thousand plus miles away. He's having a great effect on local churches that are a thousand plus miles away. So, so we got to go old school here. Okay? This is the days before the internet and video preachers. That's not what he's doing. He's not casting a hologram in front of the people of God and, and talking to them. Okay? So, so just break out of your cultural context for a moment. And, and, and think about that. He's having a great effect on people that are a thousand plus miles away. And how is he doing it? And Paul tells us it's through the man's prayer life. He walks into a room with no one else around. And he begins to go to God on behalf of these Christians thousands of miles away. And the Lord is doing something in that. The Lord is answering this man's prayers. So let's dig into this for a moment. Verse 12 and 13. Let's read it again. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Alright, look at that word. The beginning of verse 12. Paul begins to describe this prayer life and he uses this phrase. This man in his prayers is always struggling. Okay? Now we've got to break out of our cultural context. Okay? Because he's using that word in a way that we don't use that word. Okay? We use that word in regards to our prayer life to mean the exact opposite. Of what Paul means when he uses that word to describe this man's prayer life. Okay? What he means with the word struggling and what we mean with the word struggling are almost the exact opposite things. Okay? We say, I'm struggling in prayer, and we mean, brother, I need some help. Okay? Paul's saying this brother is struggling in prayer, and he's saying that brother is getting after it. Okay? He is always struggling. All right, that phrase comes from the Greek word. Listen to it. Agonizoma. He is always agonizoma. This is very close to our English word agonizing. Okay. So what does this brother's prayer life look like? That's changing the, the atmosphere of, of, of the people of God thousands of miles away. It looks like a brother always agonizing. Okay. This is a word that's taken from the athletic realm. And it describes an athlete competing and exerting himself to the very end. So the picture you get there is he is going after it. He is exerting himself. He's pouring himself out in prayer. And the Lord is using that to affect people thousands of plus miles away. He is always struggling. Always struggling. Paul really doubles down on this description in verse 13. So he's always struggling. And then he says this. 
I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you. Okay? And with that phrase, the Apostle Paul describes this man's prayer life as working hard. Okay? And we don't usually think of prayer like that. We don't think we think of prayer and work as almost opposite things, but he's saying, no, 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 no. He is working hard in prayer on your behalf. This is what he's doing. Okay? Prayer is described as hard work. And so what can we see here? One, one of the things that we can, we can see is we can be challenged by this man's life. That he is consistent in prayer. That he's fervent in prayer. And listen, he's fervent and consistent in prayer for people. Not just his family. Not just his besties. But believers thousands of miles away. He's going to God with zeal and with fervency on their behalf. And he's agonizing over them. That they would stand mature in Jesus Christ. Fully assured of the will of God. And we can, be, we can be challenged by that. That our life would be marked more and more by consistently agonizing that God would cause His people to stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. But I think there's also some encouragement to us in this phrase that He worked hard in prayer. And here's what I mean by that. At least this is how it works for me. Okay. Prayer at times is going to feel like you are working extremely hard. Okay. If you have not experienced that, you will experience that. It's going to feel at times like you are working really hard. And one of the things that this text tells us is that it's supposed to feel like that. So be encouraged by that. Sometimes we have wrong thoughts that prayer is supposed to be so natural for us that we never have to press through moments and through seasons that we labor in. That it feels like work. And not just work, but hard work. I want to encourage you with that. If you're experiencing that, that's called normal prayer life. Okay, And this is the picture that we have of this man that he's working hard in prayer. Now let me say this. That is not the only thing that prayer is, is hard work. It's one of the things that prayer feels like. It's one of the realities of a mature prayer life. Certainly true that prayer is a delight. That it is, it is the delight to be in the presence of God and calling on His holy name on behalf of the nations and on behalf of the local church that you're a part of. But I'm just encouraging you that you're going to hit seasons where it feels unnatural for you and it feels like work. And I think that one of the examples that we have of this man's life is that he presses through it. And he works really, really hard to labor in prayer for the body of Christ. Alright, I want to I close this, this passage and really I want to close Colossians with this. Okay, I want to make us aware of a temptation that is unique. To these laborers that we see one after the other in this paragraph. And the reason that I say that this temptation is unique is, well, let me, the temptation is to quit, to quit the mission. Okay. And the reason that that is unique to laborers is if you're not laboring, you already quit. There's no temptation to quit. You already did that. And so this is a unique temptation to people who lean in. And labor for Jesus Christ. And that temptation is 
As you do that, you're going to be tempted to quit. And as we do that, I want to zone in on two names. And the first is the name Mark. And we see his name mentioned in verse 10. Mark. He tells us that this man is the cousin of Barnabas. If you go back in Acts 12, it's the first time he's mentioned in the New Testament. And in Acts 12, we find out that Mark is a believer from Jerusalem. Find out that his mama is a believer in Jerusalem. And we find out that their house is a place that the the Jerusalem church gathered together. It was a place of corporate prayer. And so his name pops up in Acts 12. um, And he's there. Okay, just real quick, you see his name and then fast forward. And the next thing you see about this man in Acts is you see Paul and Barnabas and they feel called by God, sent out um, by the church at Antioch. And they're sent to the first missionary journey to the nations, missionary journey to the Gentiles. And the thing that you see just in passing is they take this man, Mark, with them. So he becomes their partner. Okay. And he's assisting them, listen, with the first missionary journey to the nations. They pioneered that. Okay? They sent, they're sent out in Acts 13. And they, go, they take the gospel to the nations for the first time in a, in a clear corporate missionary sense. And Mark was there. Okay? As you continue to read the book of Acts, you find out that on that journey, on that first missionary journey... Something, um, something happened. Something happened in the interpersonal relationships of Paul and Barnabas and Mark. And something happened in Mark's heart um, that caused him to walk away from the mission. Or another way to say that is he deserted. Okay? You see this in Acts 15. If he was a soldier, you could say that he walked away from his post. He walked away from the mission that the Lord Jesus had given him. He deserted Christ. Okay. This caused uh, a lot of conflict in the early church. Paul and Barnabas actually had a serious disagreement over this man uh, named Mark. And as they get ready to go on their second missionary journey. Uh, his cousin Barnabas says, man, let's give him another chance. Let's take him with us. And Paul says, hey, we ain't taking him with us. He deserted Christ. He's not going. And they had a disagreement that was so sharp that Paul and Barnabas actually split ways over this man's unfaithfulness to Jesus Christ. So he deserted. Paul says no. Paul and Barnabas split ways. Next time his name shows up in the Bibles in Colossians chapter 4. So I want you to think about that background and everything that you know about Mark. I want you to think about the things that we would expect to be reading. Okay, if you see, he doesn't say this, if Mark comes to you, if he peeks his head into your local church, you send him out of that place as fast as he pops his head in. That's not what he says. In fact, he, he says the exact opposite, that if Mark comes to you, he commands this local church in Colossians to welcome him, to welcome him. And so think with me for just a moment. Something happened between Acts 15 and Colossians 4. Something happened there. And the logical conclusion is that this deserter was restored to Christ. 
He came back to Christ. He was restored to the church. And eventually you're going to see that this man was restored to the mission of Jesus. And that's an encouragement to us. That he basically turns his back on Christ. Walks away from the Lord Jesus. And yet that's not the end. The Lord restored him. The Lord restored him. That's an encouragement to us just a moment ago of people like that in your life that are drifting right now away from Christ. There is hope that they can be restored to Christ, to his church and to his mission. Mark is a living example of that. He has received the, the restoring grace of God. The Lord Jesus has restored him in a real similar way to how he restored Peter after his resurrection. In fact, his, restor- his restoration is so complete. Listen to how Paul describes Mark at the very end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. He says this. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. I want you to think about that contrast. In Acts 15, Paul says, get him away from me. He turned his back on Christ. And he looks at the same man decades later and he says, bring him to me. He's useful to me for ministry. So not only was this man restored to the church, he was restored to the very inner circle, apostolic circle of the gospel mission. He was restored all the way in. And the Lord Jesus did that in his life. He restored this deserter. He even goes on after he has walked away from the mission. He even goes on to write a book of the New Testament. Okay, writes what we call the gospel of Mark. He has a prominent place in church history. And in fact, church history tells us that this man goes on. He goes on to plant churches in Egypt and dies as a martyr for Jesus Christ in Egypt. He's cut down in battle at one time in his life. He turned his back on Christ, but at the very end of his life, he died a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And so we praise God for the kindness of God that is shown to Mark. And we get uh, just a little glimpse of the transforming power of God to restore the wanderer, restore the one who has wandered off, deserted the Lord Jesus. I want us to end our time together today with a warning. In this passage, a sober warning that we get one glimpse of that in Mark's life, but we get another glimpse of that in another name in this passage. And the warning is this, that everyone who drifts, everyone who walks away from Christ, everyone who deserts, they don't come back. Everyone who walks away from Jesus is not restored to Jesus, And we see that in a man named Demas in verse 14. As we read this, these just few paragraphs, he's in there. He's, he's side by side with this band of brothers. And they're, they're striving together to get the gospel to the nations. And he's there side by side. And then, the, and then just one other time that his name shows up in the New Testament is at the very end of the Apostle Paul's life. And what you would expect to read is that this man would be like Mark, that he's cut down in battle, that he's going out faithful to the very end, following the Lord Jesus Christ. But at the very end of Paul's life, we read these words about Demas. Second Timothy, chapter four, verse 10. He says this for Demas in love with this present world 
has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He's deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. So I want you to see that contrast. Mark walked away from Jesus and was restored. Demas walked away from Christ and he didn't come back. He walked away from Jesus and when he turned his back on Christ and on the gospel, he didn't come back. He was not restored to Christ, to the church, or to the mission of Jesus. And Paul tells us why in that verse. He tells us why. Why would anybody ever do that? It's not because someone slid him a piece of paper and said, Hey, would you like to have eternal wrath for you turning your back on the Son of God and having no atonement for your sin? Would you like to have that? That's not how it happened. That's not how it happened. How did it happen? How did it happen? How did he turn his back and walk away from Jesus Christ? And he says this, that he was in love with this present world. And that's the danger that we need to feel. Okay, As we finish up Colossians and we have this picture of this glorious one that is presented to us. Christ in all of His glory, the sovereign over all things, that the only thing that could turn us away from Him is what? Love for other things besides Him. Love for other things besides Him. Love for this present world. And so what happened to Demas? He was involved with the people of God for a season. And then at some point along the way, the Christian life got hard for him. And surely you can picture that. Going to town after town. Persecuted. Rejected. At some point along the way. The Christian life got hard for him. And as time went on. That worldly life. Began to be more and more appealing. To Demas. Because it was easier. Because it was easier. Jesus warns us about this. In Matthew 7, verse 13 and 14, he says this. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. That leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so Demas made a decision at some point in his life. He was seduced by this world. And he made a decision at some point in his life that he will regret throughout all eternity. He chose the passing pleasures of this world over the glory, the eternal glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we consider this man's plight, as we consider what happened In this man's life. I want us to remember this as we close Colossians. Apostasy begins with small thoughts of Jesus. Every time. That you are not moved by his glory. That you are not overwhelmed by his majesty. His sovereignty. His sufficiency in all things. The moment that that begins to happen. You are actually opening yourself more and more up to drifting. This is why Paul's strategy in this local church that is in danger of being seduced away from Jesus Christ. His strategy is this. 
To exalt Jesus above everything else that you could possibly imagine. He is the Lord of the universe. The Christ that you love and serve made everything and listen for himself. Everything that exists, seen or unseen, exists for Jesus. And he begins to exalt him to the highest place, giving him supremacy and sovereignty in every realm. Why? Why? Because he knows that if Jesus holds supremacy, sovereignty and supremacy in the human heart, that's the safest you could possibly be from drifting away from Jesus Christ. Apostasy begins with small thoughts of Jesus Christ. And so we can remind each other of this. He is worthy. The Lord Jesus is worthy. The one who made all things for himself. He is worthy to be followed to the very end. He is worthy for us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. And literally, there is no difficulty in our life that can compare with the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. And if we learn that, Grace Community Church, then we have learned Colossians well, that he is worthy. So let's pray together. Father, we come to you, Lord, and we ask you to use the preaching of your word in our life. Lord, use this time that we spent in Colossians. Lord, use it to bear real spiritual fruit, Lord, in our life. God, not only in this season, but in seasons to come, Lord. And we pray, Lord Jesus, for our hearts that we find cold way more often than we want to, Lord. God, we pray for our minds that are not overwhelmed as they should be at your glory and at your gospel. God, we pray that you would do a work in our midst and that you would overwhelm us with the glory of Christ. God, I pray for some brothers and sisters in this room that you would restore to them their first love, a sense of overwhelmed at your glorious gospel for them. God, visit the preaching of your word. And we pray that you would reign supreme in this local church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.